Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. And here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Well, today's topic is a universal question. That's the question. How to be happy in a sad world? Or can you be happy in a sad world? Or what is happiness? It's a question, I think, that has plagued mankind or mankind has asked from the beginning of time, going back to the first cave painting where a bored cave woman or cave man tried to make themselves happier and give their life meaning by leaving a mark of their existence on the wall of the cave. Comedians have said weird things about it. Woody Allen and Annie Hall said life is divided up into two categories, the horrible and the miserable. Horrible would be like terminal cases, blind, crippled. I don't know how they get through life. It's amazing. And the miserable is everyone else. It's funny. It's cynical. But unfortunately, for some people, it's true. Right. Johnny Carson, the old uh, nighttime comedian, said, I know a man who gave up smoking, drinking sex and rich food. He was healthy right up to the day he killed himself. Another comedian had a young man said, what's the use of happiness? I can't buy you money. Then there's the sarcastic. Frank Sinatra, a man doesn't know what happiness is until he's married. By then it's too late. In other words, bashing women. But uh, philosophers have taken this problem on uh, going back to the ancients. Every one of us listening to the show is trying to be happy by listening to the show. You're trying to get a little pleasure out of your life by getting a laugh or a little meaning, things like that right? That's what man does, is we seek meaning, happiness, joy, whether it be the Super Bowl or attacking Donald Trump or defending Donald Trump. Seems the Democrat Party gets their happiness by attacking America while saying they're trying to save America. It seems the Republican Party gets their pleasure by doing nothing, by sitting there and sucking their thumbs. And we the people are stuck here in the middle. 
happiness. What is happiness? How do we deal with happiness? Well, we all know that seeking happiness can lead to disaster. The media manipulates us into thinking that if we buy this or have sex with that, we'll be happy. And maybe we will momentarily, but we know it doesn't last. That's where consumerism comes in. Buy, 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 buy. That's where all the junk comes from. We all know this. Once we grow up, we reduce our expectations to a certain extent for a number of reasons because we don't need all these things unless there's something wrong with us and we think that by buying ourselves into happiness, we're going to be happy. I don't know anyone who has, never, never have. Where does all this rampant drug use originate? The inability to be happy. So how am I sitting here talking about this going to make you happy? How? Because to me, my happiness consists of using my brain, always looking into things more deeply. Is happiness possible in this world? I get my happiness here and there. I get my knocks here and there. But you got to pick yourself up and start all over again, whether it be a disease or a personal tragedy, financial loss. What are you going to do about it? You're going to live with it. The whole world understands the fundamentals of human happiness. And it's good to talk about it. It's wonderful. And that we have the leisure to do it in our lovely, great country, this great country of ours. But there are people who are starving right now somewhere on this earth, I guess. There are children who are suffering from cancer in the back wards of hospitals. So some people understand that and they get their pleasure or happiness in helping those in need, helping animals in need. And those are the good people. Let's not be cynical about everything because without the good people, there'd be no world at all. Without those who protected nature and or the environment, if you want to call it that, we'd be living in an earth that was paved over. So the do-gooders have a place in the world, a very important place. However, when the do-gooders start to tell us how to live our lives, that's when we rebel. None of us like to be told what to do and how to live. We're not infants. We hate to be preached at. That is why today, on this podcast, I will avoid trying to preach to you. I may quote those who preach without becoming preachy. So let the games begin. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Obviously, everyone listening to this podcast is looking for happiness. At this time, trying to find happiness by engaging your mind in someone else's thoughts, which can bring us happiness. But let's go back to the Constitution. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Very clever, those founding uh, fathers. The pursuit of happiness. I've often thought about this since I'm a teenager. They never promised you happiness. They said you have the right to pursue happiness, right? Pursue happiness. Okay, well, that means it's a lifetime pursuit. So is it permanent? Do you know anyone who's ever had permanent happiness? Is it possible? How many times have I told you on the radio show over the years that the day you stop struggling and trying to achieve permanent happiness is the day you might have a chance at some contentment? Because that's what I learned in my life. So 
This started with me tweeting something the other day, which I'm going to read to you for a minute and see what happened, because I couldn't, I didn't expect this response from this one little tweet. I woke up one morning, this was before the last podcast on virus killing foods, which uh, people really, really like. So I go back to the um, tweet on February 4th, the fundamental myth of contemporary life. Here's what I wrote. The fundamental myth of contemporary life is that we can be eternally happy, leads people to despair and irrational behavior. Life is a struggle from birth to death except the pain. That was the mood I was in, and I still believe it. I always have. So some of the people responded were very, very intelligent, which is unusual for Twitter. A great writer who understood, propounded, and lived this truth was Dostoevsky, someone wrote. I'll soon reread the Brothers Karamazov that was sent by Brian Gessinger. Lewisman wrote, said, one of my favorite things you ever said on the radio was, quote, we're put on this planet to suffer. And the day we admit it, we suffer less. <laughs> oh, I must have been in some mood. <laughs> God. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, okay. See, over the years, I've always been thinking about it. Now, this is a very Catholic view is that we're born to suffer. I was not born or raised as a Catholic, and I'm not a Catholic. I'm a long-suffering human being, not in the sense of being crippled, but I've been suffering with consciousness. I'm not one of those happy-go-lucky types, right? And so other people wrote other stuff, you know, you know, no expectations means no disappointments. My psychology professor at CCNY taught us that exact lesson some 40 plus years ago, a proven truism and big help with reality throughout my life, says Tom Kelly. And I answered him, I said, now they teach that happiness can be found by hating America, which I'm going to diverge here for a moment. In America today, a lot of the happiness consists of hating someone. So the the ultra progressives hate America. They hate white people. The racists hate white people. That's their happiness is to vent their hate right that's now substituted for happiness and on the extreme right hating communists which they should do by the way communism has destroyed hundreds of millions of people worldwide so we go on and then you think about the ads the television ads in particular social media morons on social media the so-called uh, what enablers what do they call them I don't know what they call them. I call them enablers, the fakers on social media that give the impression that everyone is happy all of the time and they live nonstop lives of bliss, right? Fake rides on private jets, yachts, all stupid, stupid people. And yet this is what social media pushes down the throats of, a, of the world over and over and over. We're being exploited from birth to death by the advertising industry. And most of us don't even know we're being exploited and that we don't know why we're miserable. Okay. So, okay. So people understood this. And another one wrote, there is no struggle where there's no struggle, there's no progress. Agree with Frederick Douglass. And another one from biology, the struggle for survival is a moving force of evolution. Another one said, this is very much like Buddhist teaching. Another one said, people want instant gratification without putting in the hard work. Okay, so that's that. So then I started thinking, does anyone really want to hear a podcast about happiness? I'm sipping my coffee right now. And boy, does that feel good. 
I remember reading about happiness in when I was 18 years old and really struggling, the sufferings of young Werther. And uh, I discovered Lin Yutang, which I'll, I tell you, one day I'm going to have to quote him. I'm not going to do it now. It'll diverge me into a two-hour podcast. The Importance of Happiness by Lin Yutang I discovered when I was 18, 19 years old. It kind of saved my mind from total despair in my teenage angst. Because he wrote that happiness does not consist in the flight of fancy of poets or philosophers. Happiness consists of the simple things in life, such as getting your hair cut every two weeks and watching your neighbor fall off the roof. I thought that was very funny. So I don't have a secret to your happiness. I don't have any secrets to your misery. But I have access to a lot of thoughts that I, that I think you'll find interesting. So we move away from that tweet to today's podcast, which is on happiness. And so I open up the New York Post, the tabloid, and there's an interesting article how Robert Maxwell rose from poverty and corrupted his daughter, Ghislaine. You may remember her, poor girl, Ghislaine Maxwell. And I didn't know anything about her. She was the enabler to Jeffrey Epstein. Apparently, she was the procurer of young girls for him. That's what she's being accused of. I don't know the truth of it. She hasn't been found guilty yet, has she? Sure, she's been found guilty by social media. She's been found guilty by the tabloids. But I don't know if she's guilty. I have no idea. But nevertheless, who is she? I don't know who Ghislaine Maxwell was. She's currently held in jail over allegations of procuring underage sex partners for Jeffrey Epstein. But I read that she was her father, Robert Maxwell's favorite, and followed in his crooked footsteps after his mysterious 1992 death, according to the headlines. Well, I want to read the book, but I didn't know who Robert Maxwell was. I knew he was a very wealthy publisher who died under suspicious circumstances, having fallen off his yacht somewhere in the Canary Islands under very suspicious circumstances. But I didn't know who Robert was. He was a self-made millionaire publisher. And Baby Ghislaine was the ninth child born to Robert and, and his wife, Betty. Who is he, though? He was born in a, in a shack in an unknown area of Czechoslovakia. And he made up his mind when he was young, after he served in the uh, British military. We, I'd like to know more about what he did in the military, because it looks like he, he saw some great action in World War II. He made up his mind to have a large family. He had nine children to recreate the family of his birth after Adolf Hitler's forces slaughtered his children, the children of his birth, his brothers and sisters. All of them were killed by Hitler. His parents were killed by Hitler, and his grandfather was thrown in the ovens at Auschwitz. I would say that that motivated him. So then, at age 38, Maxwell is a rich man. He's living in a 53-room mansion in Oxford, England, 1,400 miles away from his own childhood in a two-room shack with no floors but soil, earth. Then tragedy strikes. Three days uh, after Ghislaine is born, her eldest brother, 15-year-old Michael, is crushed in a car accident that leaves him in, in comatose for the next six years. And that's what started the downfall of the family. So I'm not going to talk about Robert Maxwell's rise and death 
and Ghislaine. I think that that's an interesting and tragic story unto itself that people will look into to on their own. How a man rose from a desperately impoverished poor Jewish family in a village in Ukraine and became what he became when he goes to England, he adopts a Scottish name, Maxwell, when his name in in this village was Hosh, H-O-C-H, okay? So he adopts a new name, Maxwell, gets into the British Army, even though he wasn't a citizen, he enlisted, saw action in France and Germany, and left his family behind, who were all wiped out in the Holocaust. And so this created an open wound in him. He became fluent in Russian, English, French, very brilliant man. So the British Intelligence Service gives him a job running a propaganda operation in post-war Berlin. And he launches his publishing empire by buying up a huge catalog of German scientific research with the help of MI6, Britain's Foreign Intelligence Agency. And he becomes very, very wealthy with this publishing empire, which the MI6 wanted to help put out disinformation to Soviet contacts and pick up data on new technology. That's what spies did. And he establishes a modern scientific publishing company called Pergamon. Very respectable at the time. But he starts to do things that were very shady. He borrows in the name of one of his businesses to make another appear more profitable. He strips assets out of the company, something that's done all the time now by a lot of the hedge fund scum. And we go on from there into the story of this man trying to achieve happiness. And he winds up floating off his yacht, named after his daughter, Lady Ghislaine, under suspicious circumstances. Was he killed because he was a spy? Was he killed because he screwed someone in business? Did he just fall off the ship drunk? Now, remember, when he was young, he was a good-looking, thin guy. I don't know if you know what Robert Maxwell looked like when he was older, but he looked like a really, really portulent, you know, Nero-like, right? So I start thinking about what are the seven cardinal sins, the seven deadly sins? Because this is tied into what is happiness in my mind. The seven deadly sins, according to Christ Christian tradition, are, are you ready for this? Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. In other words, everything that American media and social media promotes are the seven deadly sins. Everything that the vermin in the media push down your throats every day, everything that make you miserable is pushed by social media and the advertising industry. So you see these lowlifes in high places pushing it. Images of them on airplanes they don't own. Images of them. Why do I have to see another, another skank in a bikini splashing in the surf in Mexico? How many times can I see that trash? How many times can I look at white trash splashing in the surf in Malibu? I, I get angry thinking about what the tabloids do to people pushing this on people like that's going to bring happiness when it's fake to begin with so envy gluttony greed or avarice by the way sloth wrath envy and pride i think all of us combine some of these in some ways in our daily lives at some point we have to fight against them don't we don't we have to fight every day against being gluttonous or lustful or greedy or laying in bed in the morning slothful being angry, wrathful, being envious of someone 
or having too much pride. Of course we do. That's the human condition. So we look at these lust, a passion for especially sexual desires. Don't we have to control these things? No, not according to the social media, not according to the tabloids like the New York Post. Every day they show another girl in a skimpy bikini or another douche in a, in, with his abs showing, some moron who winds up throwing himself out of a building when he can't make a nickel. Another with perfect abs that throws himself off a building in, in New York City or Los Angeles when he realizes he's a zero. Bible speaks about lust in 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Wouldn't that be beautiful if we were taught that today? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Self-control, control your passions. Wouldn't that be nice? We're not, though. We're taught the opposite. We're taught to indulge all of this lustful feeling. Then we move on to gluttony. An excessive and ongoing eating of food or drink. Look at the ads on television for the poisonous dreck, garbage, food. Implanting in our minds the desire to eat garbage, right? And then selling you pills to lose weight or a machine to take the weight off. What about temperance? Where does that come from? Where's, where's the temperance in our life? The desire to be healthy making you fit to serve God and others. Are you kidding, Michael? Fit to serve God and others? Are you kidding? Next cardinal sin, greed. An excessive pursuit of material goods. Well, what does the Bible say about that? I don't want to bore you with it. But what cures greed? Well, for one, not reading the tabloids. Two, laughing and, if you want, mocking those they, they show us as happy when we know they're miserable junk, junkies. The desire to help others, putting that above storing up treasure for yourself, may cure greed. What about sloth and excessive laziness and the failure to act and utilize one's talents, right? <laughs> what cures sloth? How about diligence or intense zeal, okay, to place the interest of others or society above a life of ease and relaxation? That would cure sloth. I would like to stay in bed most mornings, and then I realize it's going to make me sick. I get out of bed, so you could say I'm doing it for ego, and then I think I have a job to do. People say to me, why are you still working, for example? You're an older guy. You made enough money to retire a long time ago. Why do you work? Why don't you just lay in bed? Why? I don't even have an answer to the question. Wrath. I have a weakness for wrath. It's a strong anger and hatred towards another person, right? The Bible teaches us in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, I will repay says the Lord. I've had that in my own life. And everyone that I've wanted to hurt, everyone without exception has been hurt by God or fate or time. I've never seen anything like it. People who have tried to hurt me have wound up hurt themselves, not because of me. I'm not that egotistical, but I've seen it over and over again. Wrath, watch out for that one. Envy, envy, oh, is that promoted by the tabloids? Every ad in every way tries to induce envy. Every one of them. What is the cure for envy? Kindness. Every religion teaches us this. 
Kindness will cure envy by putting the desire to help others or helping even a pet above the need to supersede other people. That's such a Christian concept. You understand that? Pride. Oh, my God. The media is all pride. Another idiotic actor, another idiotic actress cavorting in the surf off Malibu with another idiot with abs. Why do they promote that? Because it sells stuff. The influencers on social media are nothing. They're empty skirts, all of them. So we know what pride is. It's an excessive view of oneself without regard for others. It's also an excessive view of oneself without having achieved anything. They have no humility. They think they're great just because they think they're great. So what cures that humility? It removes boastfulness. It removes one's ego. And believe me, time will do that to all of us. Getting older will do that to all of us. Just getting older, if you live long enough, eventually your ego comes to understand that no matter who you are or what you do, you're going to age. And it mellows you out. So again, I know this is very preachy, which is not what I intended to do here. I wanted to talk about happiness and sadness, and I'm going to do that in a moment on the Savage Nation podcast. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. So I spent a lot of time just now, perhaps too much time, talking about the seven deadly sins, the cardinal sins, when I really had intended to talk about is happiness possible. So I want to pick up where I left off. I, I talked about the seven cardinal sins according to the Christian view of the world, and Judaism is similar, Buddhism is similar in different ways. All religions teach the same thing in different ways. But what is the root of all of the cardinal sins? It's the desire for more and the human desire for excess. More, more, more. More, more, more. We want more. And, and all of our society, the entire world of our materialistic society, pushes us to want more, eat more, exercise more, be healthier. It's all greed. And gluttony, when you think about it, exercise more, look better, it's greed, greed and gluttony. Eat more, eat more, eat less, eat less. So that's more, more again, ego, more ego to look better. So, you know, okay, God, we're all struggling with this all the time. We try to be balanced. Now, I originally intended to do this podcast about joy and sorrow. And the first thing I wanted to mention on this podcast was one of my favorite philosophers that I remember from college. He was very, very big when I was in college. His name was Cahil Gibran. A Lebanese Muslim, by the way. And he wrote a book called The Prophet, published in 1923. I read him in the early mid-60s, right? Early 60s. He was really popular when I was in college. Everybody was reading and quoting The Prophet. And we would quote it to each other. Look at the difference between the world then and the world now. Maybe I just had smart friends. I don't know. But everybody loved reading The Prophet. Girls, boys. And so he wrote things like on joy and sorrow. And he wrote, a woman said, speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the selfsame well from which your laughter rises was often filled with your tears. Right? Think about that. The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? 
Is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? It's very, very touching to read this, by the way. And he goes on and says, Some of you say joy is greater than sorrow, and others say no, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. Boy, that's frightening, isn't it? Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you at standstill and balanced. It's very touching. You've got to understand, Cahil Gibran was a great poet. He died very young. He was a morphine addict, by the way. Why was he a morphine addict? Probably he felt so much pain that he had to take drugs in order to kill the pain. Am I justifying using drugs? You decide. Most of you use drugs anyway, one way or the other. Alcohol, uh, vitamins, they're all drugs. But what do the world's great philosophers talk about when they try to talk about happiness? Where do they lead us? Why is there even philosophy in the world? Why? Because man, man has always sought answers to these questions since man could think. From the time he drew on a cave wall, he was trying to mark his time on earth and try to understand what he's doing on this planet. Buddha wrote, there is no path to happiness. Happiness is the path. Sounds too much like Marin County to me. Most of them with the guru stuff. Bertrand Russell, one of my favorite philosophers, wrote, of all forms of caution, caution and love is perhaps the most fatal to true happiness. So he would say, throw yourself into love. I would disagree with him. I'd say, I would say Russell was wrong. Nietzsche, Nietzsche, the nihilist said, happiness is the feeling that power increases that resistance is being overcome. Now, Nietzsche, of course, was, I think, one of Hitler's favorite philosophers. Happiness is the feeling that power increases, that resistance is being overcome. In other words, dominating others gives you happiness. Socrates, back in 450 BC, wrote, the secret of happiness, you see, is not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. I like that. Plato lived in 4th century BC. What did my mentor write? The man who makes everything that leads to happiness depends upon himself and not upon other men, has adopted the very best plan for living happily. Wow, the man who makes everything that leads to happiness depends upon himself. I think he meant dependent upon himself and not upon other men, has adopted the very best plan for... Okay, got it. So in other words, make yourself happy. Aristotle, another great Greek philosopher, wrote, happiness depends upon ourselves. I guess he took it from Plato, Right? John Stuart Mill, born in 1806, wrote, I have learned to seek my happiness by limiting my desires rather than in attempting to satisfy them. That's nice. What about Asians? Confucius lived in China around 500 BC. The more man meditates upon good thoughts, the better will be his world and the world at large. That's beautiful. How about reading good literature, listening to great music instead of watching the slime on television? Seneca, born in Hispania in 4 BC, wrote, The greatest blessings of mankind are within us and within our reach. A wise man is content with his lot, whether it may be without wishing for what he has not. All right, got it. Lao Tzu, 600 BC, China. If you are depressed, you're living in the past. Wow. If you are depressed, you're living in the past. If you are anxious, you are living in the future. If you are at peace, you're living in the present. Very nice. Now, I know I like a, why I like Chinese food with the drawings on the wall. Can't go in there anymore. How about Henry David Thoreau, born in 1817 in Massachusetts? 
Thoreau was interesting. He wrote another one we read in college. Happiness is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more it will elude you. But if you turn your attention to other things, it will come and sit softly on your shoulder. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. So originally, my podcast was going to be entitled Human Happiness, The Greatest Myth. Human Happiness, The Greatest Myth. Because it goes back to my tweet. The fundamental myth of contemporary life is that we can be eternally happy. Leads people to despair and their rational behavior. I wrote, life is a struggle from birth to death except the pain. I'll continue talking about happiness and life satisfaction in a while, right here on the Savage Nation podcast. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. So again, to pick up where I left off, let's look at religion for a minute. I know everyone, oh, I don't want to hear about religion. Well, I think religion's deeply tied into happiness and sadness one way or the other. And I personally think the reason our society has gone to hell is because God has been destroyed in America by the left, particularly by the ACLU. They're probably the most evil people on the planet. They're now running the country. They're the one who gave us Joe Biden to get very political. This is the most atheistic, anti-religious group in the history of America. Contrary to what the public relations of Joe Biden reading a Bible will show you. It's the most cynical thing. Again, the same people who show you the skanks in the water off Malibu are showing you Joe Biden in a sweater going to church. Religion. What about different religions? How do different religions see the world? And do different people in different religions have, a, have different levels of happiness? That's interesting. Who knows? So Pew Forum on Religion looks at it. I don't, I don't like the Pew group. I don't like these kind of studies. But just for the sake of discussion, the Journal of Religion and Health looked into the variability in happiness and life satisfaction amongst Buddhists, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and other religious and unreligious people. Using data from the World Value Survey and a questionnaire. I don't know how this would work. And they tell you about the average happiness in a scale of <laughs> I have to laugh at this. The average happiness in a scale of one to four was higher amongst Protestants, followed by Buddhists, other religions, then Roman Catholics, then Jews, then Hindus, then Muslims, then the non-religious. And finally, the Orthodox had the lowest happiness. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm joking. No, not really. Really. That means I don't have to become super religious. So the average life satisfaction on a scale of 1 to 10 was higher amongst Roman Catholics, good for them, followed by Protestants, other religions, Buddhists, Jews, non-religious, Hindus, Muslims, and finally, Orthodox had the lowest life satisfaction. I don't know whether this was meant, you know, the Pew is a super left-wing group, maybe it's to attack religious people. So to me, that's neither here nor there, but I, I don't know, does religion make you happy? Well, if you believe in another world, the next world where you're going to be eternally happy, it can make you happy in this world. Some people in some religions, in fact, will put a suicide bomb on their chest and kill uh, babies and women and children and others because in the next world they're promised a certain number of virgins. How's that for a religion? So then there's another article that says accepting unhappiness makes you happier. Feeling bad about feeling bad makes you feel worse. Right, okay, got it. In other words, accepting unhappiness makes you happier. In other words, that's life. 
If you have bad emotions or you're psychologically stressed, it'll make you worse if you think that uh, you're not supposed to experience this. If you accept bleak feelings such as sadness, resentment, disappointment, what happens? It can make you worse. You can't let them run you. You can't let them run you and you can't take a pill to get out of them. Right? If you accept these emotions without embracing them or judging yourself too harshly for having these feelings, like saying, what's wrong with me? You'll be able to live with your stress, say, this is life. I compare it to the tides. I'm a boater. And so I would say, if you look at the tides, and there are, two, there are four tides every day, too low and too high, I would say that's the human being. And I've said it before on my radio show. If you want to be a flatliner and feel one emotion all day long, see a shrink and take a pill. But having said that, let's face it, health has a lot to do with it. Money has a lot to do with it. Friendships have a lot to do with it. Relationships and knowledge have a lot to do with uh, happiness, right? Health, money, friendships, relationships, and knowledge. And in this age of COVID, we've lost our friendships. We've lost our relationships. Many of us have lost our incomes. So no wonder we're very unhappy. Who do you blame for that? I, I, I can blame a lot of people for being idiots, for having done this to us. There's almost no science related to the treatment that we're seeing, the, the lockdowns, the social distancing, the masking. I'm sorry to tell you, this is not based on science. It's, it's witchcraft. So what is happiness? Well, in plain English and in simple terms, if you live the life you want to live, if you work at a job you enjoy, if you have good relationships, if you spend your free time in the way you want, you're going to be happy. And when, you, when these things are taken away from you by these health officials, we become miserable, suicidal, in fact, because they've taken control of our lives. The worst of them all, and I don't even want to mention his name, Dr. Fausti. First one mask worked, then it didn't work. Then two masks worked, and they didn't work. Every day, another, another edict, close the restaurants, open the restaurants, outdoor dining, indoor dining. These people are evil. These are bureaucrats. So when they take away where you can live, where you can work, whether you can make a living, whether you can hang around with your friends, they're destroying your whole reason to live. Can money bring you happiness? Well, as my mother, God rest the soul, used to say, rich or poor, it's good to have money. It's not a bad joke. In other words, of course money makes life easier. Living in a, in a hut with no floor but the soil beneath you, okay, would, would not be as pleasant as even living in a house with a nice warm bed. So what about money? What are you supposed to do with it? I don't know, giving it to charities and seeing it do good, helping animals that are dying or something or suffering, helping children that are suffering makes you feel good using your own intelligence to solve problems makes you feel good using your strength to protect the weak would make you feel good not to manipulate and dominate others these are things that make you feel good well that's all this philosopher michael savage has to say today home of borders language culture the savage nation well life is funny as I was finishing this podcast, actually just over the weekend, 
I went out on my little boat. I bought a new boat, a 12-foot boat with a 25-horsepower, brand-new fuel-injected engine, and it should have been perfect. I only wanted it as a runabout. And um, all right, so I take the life jacket. I've had another one. I had another little boat. I had to get rid of it. It was sold to me by uh, thieving boat dealers, which came with a bigger boat. They didn't tell me that the engine was no good. They didn't tell me that it was a carbureted engine that would always get gummed up. I got rid of it after two years. I was Every time I went out with it, it would, wouldn't start. So to make a long story short, it took me a long time to pick the new boat, to get the new boat, like three months. Got it delivered yesterday. Brand new from the nicest guy in the world, the boat dealer. He sells all of the small boats around the Bay Area. Nicest guy in the world. We ran it. Everything was fine. So I go out there. I couldn't wait to get up. I was like a kid with a new train set. Beautiful day. We're having extraordinarily warm weather for the winter here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I got up very early. I wanted to go out on my toy boat. I, you know, just hang local, local. Smell the water. See the birds, etc. Starts fine. Go out. Love it. Dressed very warmly, you know. And I had a cup of tea with me in a takeout container. I figured, all right, I'll go out. So I go out. I'm out about 20 minutes going from one little yacht harbor to another. It's running perfectly. I'm coming back in. It quits. It won't go in gear. No matter what I do, the engine won't start. So I said, oh, God, a dead battery on a new boat. So I want to show you how the mind works, at least my mind. What am I going to do? The boat's conked out. I'm drifting. This is as I'm entering my little yacht harbor. I'm drifting outside the harbor into a, into a, um, a cove. The tide's moving pretty quickly. And uh, I had one paddle oar. I knew I could never paddle against the tide. It was impossible. So what did I do? I could have called, you know, an emergency number, but I didn't want to do that. So I called the raft guy who sold it to me, and I said, the boat won't start. He said, let's go on FaceTime. So I go on, and he hears it, and he, he says, okay, see if the ball has enough gas, blah, 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 press the ball, see if this, see if that, click, 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 nothing works. So he said, I'll be there in 45 minutes. I said, where are you, you know? He said, well, I'm in San Francisco. I got to go finish what I'm doing here, race across the bridge to the East Bay and get in my fast boat and speed over to you. I won't be there for 30, 40 minutes. I said, okay, what can I do? It's a nice day. So I sat in the boat, nice day, looking at the birds. Meanwhile, I'm drifting and drifting and drifting. I couldn't even row against it with this one paddle. I had asked him to install oars and oarlocks, which no one does, and he didn't. My old boat that I got rid of had oars and oarlocks built into it, would you believe it? Drifting, drifting, drifting. It's like 30 minutes, 35 minutes. I'm enjoying the air and the water. So my mind starts to say, I'm getting rid of this boat. They sold me a lemon. The engine's no good. They sold me a dead battery. They sold me an old battery. That's, that's first I got very angry. But I want to show you about how the mind works. So I said, well, you know, this would be nice if I had a neighbor to come get me that I could call. But I'm not particularly liked in this liberal neighborhood that I live in. And I had no one to call except one person. He's the only conservative I know in the neighborhood. It's a long story. Luckily, he was in because he's off and out, and he has work boats all over this place. He does dredging, and he has work boats. I said, hey, my boat cut out. I can't get it to start. Do you know anyone who could come get me? He has, you know, boats and 
he could have said no. He said, let me go see if I have gas in my work, but I'll come get you if I do. He's not a talker like me, but he's a staunch conservative like me, maybe more so. I don't really know. I mean, I know he's very upset by the election. All right. So he's not the kind who would call five minutes later and say, look, I, I have gas. I'll be right over. That's something I would do, like New Yorker type, constantly talking. So I said, you know, don't bug the guy. So I call him like 15 minutes later. I said, give him a break, for God's sakes. He just called him. And he got to go from his house to his yacht harbor to the boat, see if he has gas, and then come get you. So it's like 20 minutes. Lo and behold, 20 minutes later, turns the corner in his smoking old work boat. It's a shallow draft boat, like a little tiny barge. And I'm talking old. It was like out of Grapes of Wrath. And he uses it as a work boat. But there he was coming, coming to get me. I was going to be saved. And uh, again, this is not a story about a tragedy. This is a story about philosophy. So the one person I talk to in the neighborhood comes and gets me. I wave. Thanks for coming. I said, hey, one thing. I said, I can guarantee you that there are people who would like to see me sink here. He said, yeah, I'm sure there are. And he said, I guarantee you there's some people I wouldn't have come and helped either. So it turns out that, you know, we're like-minded politically. And he come and got me. So listen to this. So he looks at the boat. He's very experienced on the water. He looks at the boat for one minute. Immediately he says, your little bow line is probably tangled up in your propeller. I said, you're kidding me. I didn't think of it. Brand new boat. All I did was put an old line on it that I had that was too long for the boat. He said, look, Michael, the first rule of a small boat is never have a line on it that's longer than the boat. I said, oh, what a moron I am. God. Right? So he said, try to turn it over. It wouldn't turn over. He said, okay, your line's caught up in the propeller. He said, let me look at it. So slowly he has to pull it around, pull it around. I'm pushing. He's pulling. He says, yeah, the line's in it. So he says, let's do this. He said, I'll tell you in, but let's cut the line off first. So we cut, cuts the line off first, and he said, I throw it in the water. He said, no, no, put this on the wall. Make it in, frame it up, and, and remember it. It's very funny philosophy, and of course, I will do it. So as he's towing me in, and we get near the dock, he says, start your engine. I start the engine. He said, now you're on your own. You're good. I offer him a bottle of wine. He says, I'm not drinking I'll give them a great bottle of wine. You know, maybe the missus would like it. I didn't know what to do for him. I invite him for dinner, but they don't go out now in this time of the COVID. I'll leave them a good bottle of wine. So I felt good that there was one neighbor in the neighborhood who would who was A, home, B, would come out and get me and rescued me in a way. And then arrived as my boat is self-propelled onto the dock because it started right up after the line was taken off the propeller. Here comes the boat dealer an hour later had raced over and i told him on the phone it's my fault i said turns out i let the line get tangled up in the propeller he said i'm coming anyway i want to see it so comes out and da 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 we talk about this talk about that i said look the one thing i need to have is i must have an anchor on this 12-foot boat because i was drifting right ashore there and it wasn't good he said the first thing is the rule is i need an anchor when he didn't get one and i said i need you to put orlocks in but that's not the point of this story is in a way I achieved happiness. Why? Because I saw neighborliness from my neighbor. I saw that my mind raced to the wrong conclusions about why the engine quit. And I learned the lesson not to rush to conclusions when things go wrong. 
I also saw that I didn't get angry. I didn't panic. I was able to sit there and enjoy the birds and the smell of the water as I waited, as I paddled against an incoming, a tide that was taking me out. I learned an awful lot today, but I learned that Lin Yu Tang's book, The Importance of Living, taught me very important lessons when I was 18, and I referenced it earlier in this podcast, where he said, happiness consists not in the fancy flights of poets, but in having your hair cut every two weeks and watching your neighbor fall off the roof. And there are other things in that book, The Importance of Living, which I don't have anymore that I could reference. This was happiness in a certain way. I learned about neighborliness. I learned about humility. I learned about forgiveness. I learned about anger management. And I learned most importantly that there are good people on the earth who will help you in a time of need, which at the end of the day is happiness. Thanks for listening to the Savage Nation podcast. I'm Michael Savage. Fans of the spoken word, welcome. This is a podcast. Greetings, pod recipients. You are entering the Savage Nation. Read the book. See the movie. So true enough, people can make us happy, can make us sad. Kindness, of course, always makes us feel good. I've often quoted Eugene O'Neill, who wrote Long Day's Journey Into Night and many other great plays on my radio program over the many years because it's been something I have uh, thought about throughout my whole life. Where he wrote, Success is a stale finale. The struggle is the success. I've never forgotten that. Because if you ask yourself how you feel after you've achieved something, what you want to do, you feel empty. And you want to fill up that emptiness. And if you're a creator, you'll create something new. So remember that. Success is a stale finale. The struggle is the success. We're all born to struggle. And the quicker we accept that, the less painful it will be. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed and learned something from it. And I want to remind you of something that I think is important for you to know. We have over 280 Savage Nation podcast episodes available to you absolutely free. I'll say that again. You can go back into this vast library of over 280 episodes and listen to any one of them or several of them at your leisure. So you never have to be without the Savage Nation. Thank you very much for listening.